0: Aspire. Welcome back to Starting Now. I'm your host, Jeff Seris. This is the show where I talk to entrepreneurs to reveal the unexpected paths to entrepreneurship. Today, my guest is Joe Valley. Joe is the, the author of the Exitpreneurs Playbook. And he's bought and sold over a half dozen of his own companies. And today, he is he's helped... Closed nearly $100 million in transactions for other entrepreneurs who are selling their businesses. His expertise is in selling your online business. And you, you might be just starting out, you might not be thinking, oh, I wanna sell my business one day. But inevitably every business will either die or be transferred to someone else when uh, when you may move on or or pass on. So it's actually, it's very important to start thinking today how you would exit and how you can prepare to exit from your company this is a great conversation we dive into joe's story we dive into the some of the nitty-gritty of how you can prepare and we talked a lot about the book as well because this book is that ultimate guide to selling your business so without further ado my conversation with joe valley so yeah, how do you just sort of briefly encapsulate what you do today? And then I like to dive into origin stories and go, go way back.
1: So what I do today is help people understand the value of their greatest asset, which is their online business, and make sure that they get that maximum value. Um, I own uh, up with a partner, a company called Quiet Light Brokerage. We're one of the leading online M&A firms in the world, specifically focused only on online businesses. Um, and to help more people and reach more people, I recently wrote, I like to say the best-selling book. I was just, I was, <laughs> I was kind of chuckling when you came on screen here because I was on a podcast AMA yesterday and the guys introduced me as, uh, the author of the Experner's Playbook and I was having a good time with them. Like, wait a minute, I'm the best-selling author. Come on now. <laughs> I hit the bestseller on Amazon in seven categories. Yeah, that's and awesome. So, <laughs> they put it live on, uh. Listen notes yesterday, and, and it, it says best selling. <laughs> it's really <laughs> nice. funny. But I took a screenshot. And I'm going to send them uh, uh, just uh, the arrows pointing there. It's pretty funny. Yep, but for sure. What I do now is it's mainly, really, you know, I've been self employed since 1997. Um, but I take my life experience through having built, bought, and sold six of my own businesses and helping thousands of entrepreneurs. I've sold about a hundred million in transactions myself through Quiet Light and helped uh, sell another half a billion through the team. Um, and just taking that experience and helping people. And that's it. Strangely enough, it's conversations, helping them and guiding them. And if they choose to use Quiet Light as their advisor, when they exit, great. If they do it on their own, that's great too. As long as it had an impact on their lives, I'm good. Yeah,
0: definitely. So do your days consist of a lot of conversations, like maybe like this or in person then?
1: Yeah. All day long.
0: Yeah. What would a typical day day look like then just from your, uh, your side? Uh,
1: probably at this point, because I launched the book in June, you know, anywhere from one to three podcasts or AMAs a -hmm. day. Strangely enough, I've done, you know, it's the barely been two months and I've done, you know, I've done a lot of podcasts, even with working vacations in there. Um, and then it's strategy talk with our team, with my partner, making sure the company's going in the right direction. And I'm not having individual one-on-one conversations as much anymore, Jeff, because I'm not brokering. Mm-hmm. And I, I stopped you know, the brokering. Uh, really, I closed my last transaction in January, and now I'm just feeding them off to the rest of the team. We've got 12 advisors on the team. So my day consists of podcasting, strategy, planning, marketing, and mentoring uh, of the team itself.
0: Nice. Yeah. And we'll dive more into all of all of that in a minute, but I like to always rewind, go back to the origin story. So who were you at say twelve years old? What did you sort of envision for your life and where you would uh like aspire to be?
1: Yeah, it's funny. I I I got my first grasp on supply and demand as a kid. I lived on Central Street in Gardner, Maine, and I'd go outside at night with a flashlight and I'd look at the ground and the night crawlers would come up at night, right? I'd get them in the in the flashlight I'd grab them and then put them in you know my cup and then I'd put them in the basement in that you know box of dirt that I had and my dad was kind enough to let me have worms in the house <laughs> and a sign out front on Central Street that said night nightcrawlers for sale and you know the fishermen would come by I'd take them to the basement I'd sell them some live nightcrawlers. That was my first experience with supply and demand I actually, I mean I was I think I did it before I was 12 years old but I, I loved it and that was the beginning of that entrepreneurial spirit, I never really thought I'd work for anybody else. Uh-huh. Of course, you go through those times in life when you do. You know, I went to oh. college. I thought I was going to be a stockbroker at one point. I got registered with my Series Six and Seven in North uh, Series Six and Sixty Three in the state of Massachusetts. Worked for Scudder Funds. Hated it bummed around for a few years from job to job, trying to figure out what I was going to do. I didn't, I didn't really have a, a real job until I was about 29 years old. Yes. And, and at that point, it was a very entrepreneurial vibe. And I was there for about three and a half years before I went off it on my own. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And just that very first, I mean, being so young and doing that with the Nightcrawlers, was there um, an influence in your life who sort of led you down that path? Did you just mm. have that vibe initially,
1: just intrinsically? I think it was probably Stan McCurdy. It was my parents. My parents always hung out with the McCurdys playing Chinese checkers every Friday night. And I can still hear Sandra laughing today. She had the highest pitch laugh on on earth. I'd be trying to sleep at night and she keeps laughing. But Stan uh, was an entrepreneur thrown through it. Sandra's family was as well. But I remember when I was about 15 years old, I'd, I'd always heard Stan's stories and saw his growth in the business all the years that I knew him. And I ended up going to work for him one day and uh, they were over the house one weekend. And I was a little punk complaining about the uh, amount of money I had in the work. And he straightened me right out. He basically said, listen, you want more work, work more. There's plenty of work to be done. All you need to do is put in more time. It wasn't the work smarter, not harder type of thing. It was more of the old school, put in the time, work your ass off and get the job done. Stop complaining there's plenty of work to be done and 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 so that led to it and stan was my first sort of what millionaire next door mentor that gave me straight up advice without even realize he was mentoring me yeah and, and that was beautiful. sort of the beginning of it yeah
0: yeah for sure and having that having that inspiration early on because the smarter not harder definitely is a valuable approach but when you're a young kid like you need sort of that grind. You need to get that hustle going. I think I imagine that really played a role, sort of, as you're moving forward.
1: I, you know, I I don't necessarily like the term hustler. Okay. But yeah. that's exact. But that's exactly what I was. My uh-huh. my uh, my oldest brother's wife, Allison. Uh, her dad, uh, Dick, said to me one of the first times I met him. He said, "He said, Joe, I, I hear you're quite the hustler," and I'm like what are you, what are you telling me here? Am I a gigolo? What's, what are you talking about <laughs> here Dick? Uh, and it was because uh, even within my own family, I had a reputation of doing, you know, working my ass off doing whatever I had to do to get the job done and get ahead. And I think even at, at that time, that, that may have been the time when I had, uh, I might've already started a business and, and was working full time to sor- support my side hustle that became my, my full-time gig pretty quickly. Yeah. So so then fast forwarding, you were
0: in college, you started working in essentially like startup vibe. Do you want to mm-hmm. dive into
1: that a little bit? Yeah. So I, I went to Northeastern University and it's in Boston. And at Northeastern, I, I have a degree in finance, um, which I don't use. Um, <laughs> but you, you go out, at, you go to school, for a semester or two and then you go to work for a semester or two. And everyone uh, all of my friends were going to work for Gillette and these large companies that uh, everybody knew that you had to have a 3.0 grade point average to even interview with them. I, I didn't. I had like a 2.7, so that was off the table for me. Um, but I went to, I went to work. I wanted to try this entrepreneur, entrepreneurial vibe. This is after I did a little work at Scudder funds and realized I did not want to wear a suit and carry an empty suitcase. Uh, With my lunch in it every day, just to look (laughs) important when I in fact wasn't, and so I took a job as an assistant manager. This is, this is, this is when my parents are paying twenty thousand dollars a year for school, and of course I'm paying for it too through student loans. But uh, I took a job at a a little place called uh, Cajun Joe's Fried Chicken and Biscuits in Brighton, (laughs) Massachusetts, and um, I'm working there. And this guy walks in. And he's got jeans on, a polo shirt, beat up leather jacket, beat up leather briefcase. And I happen to be the guy at the counter at the moment. And he says, hey, look, I, uh, this is what I do. I uh, own a company called Dining In and I, uh, I deliver food for restaurants that don't deliver on their own. And this was, this was back in late, early, early, early 1990s, let's say. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so nobody was really delivering on their own very much. Uh, as soon as Michael left, his name is Michael Hackle. As soon as he left, I went out back and I talked to Dick, the owner of the business, and I explained it. And he's like, and he said, Oh, that sounds like a really interesting idea. I said, Yes, it is. And I want to do it. He said, Okay, I'll back you on that. So, you know, I see something like that. Michael's got a great idea. And I'm like, Well, I can do that. Mm-hmm. I want to do that. I'm going to do that. And I did it. But Michael's business was very high-end. You wore tuxedos and you delivered, you know, the food, um, generally from high-end restaurants. So I don't know why he came into Cajun Joe fried chicken and biscuits. We never did a deal with them, mostly because I delivered for it. But I changed it and I was gonna mostly make it college restaurant, college uh, clientele. And so I uh I got high. <laughs> and uh brainstormed with some friends and came up with a great name. It was called the wrong number. We tried all sorts <laughs> of different names, but the wrong number, we had a laughing fit for a good half hour. And for some stupid reason, I thought that was a smart name. It was very memorable. <laughs> Definitely. And uh I went out to 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 five or six restaurants in my area at Northeastern University, and I pitched them on the idea and they all said yes. I'm like, okay, supply-demand. There's a definite need for this. These guys are saying yes. I'm just faxing them an order and delivering their food and marking it up slightly and making, you know, built-in tip money. Uh, And I did that, Jeff, for about six months while I was in college. I was full-time student running this business full-time at night, seven days a week. And I learned a lot, but it was exhausting. And, uh, Christmas break came around. I called all the restaurants and said, I'm done. I'm exhausted. I need to just focus on school. And, uh, when I came back from Christmas break, I applied for a job at Dining In, and went to work for Michael. And strangely enough, I actually had less stress and made more money as a driver for <laughs> Dining In than I did for the wrong number. But I learned it an awful lot. And then I learned more working for Michael and Dwight, who was his partner at the time. Michael eventually sold to a company called Grubhub that we all yeah. know about today, right? Uh, so that was a great experience for me and, and the one in college that made me, again, know that I had to go the entrepreneurial course. I didn't know exactly what that path was going to be or what I was going to do but there was no doubt in my mind that that's the route I was going to go in in life.
0: Yeah and it, it shows at that point you were already I mean as at a young age too you were seeing opportunity and like you had that drive to pursue opportunity because there is so much out there in all these different verticals and I'm sure you hadn't really considered driving and delivering much before he came into that restaurant but it it was an avenue you could take on your own that you didn't need to get permission necessarily beyond the the restaurants themselves
1: Yeah, I had no idea before. I didn't know it existed before, but it was a simple concept that filled a need, and therefore it's a viable business. And I jumped on it, and it worked. And very little overhead. Like I said, Dick and I became partners on it, but I think the total investment on his part was two thousand dollars. It was it was not a whole lot. He had some extra space. I got a phone. Yada yada yada. It was it was pretty simple, pretty low overhead, and he made his money back, and then a little bit uh, of cash back as well. But I was just too tired, Uh, and and I wasn't ready right? Mm-hmm. Um, I was still young and I was still in college and that was important to me. And it wasn't that I just wanted to get the degree. I really enjoyed the lifestyle of loving being in college, yeah. right? Uh, my friends were all having fun and partying while I was working seven nights a week and struggling to get, get decent grades. But what it taught me was uh, a little bit more of what I didn't want to do in addition to what I did want to do. So, you know, Working at Scudder Funds taught me that I don't want to put on a suit and go into an office and work in a corporate environment where you have to kiss ass and climb the ladder in that way, and it's very political. Um, working at Cajun Joe's Fried Chicken and Biscuits, and I always have to say the whole name because it's <laughs> just so very cool. They they eventually sold to uh, uh, Subway, so I got to meet oh, Fred wow. at one point. Yeah, so I got to meet him yeah. as well. So I got to meet some pretty cool people along the way just working at Cajun Joe's, Michael uh-huh. Hackle, Grubhub, and... Uh, Fred, I can't remember Fred's last name from Subway. I know he passed away a few years ago. Um, but I, I learned an awful lot about what I didn't want to do in addition to what I did want to do. And that, I think, is critical to entrepreneurial success because whatever you're going to do as an entrepreneur, you're going to be all in or you're going to fail and 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 you need to be all in with something that fills your cup and you enjoy and that lifestyle in particular there's a lot of arguments out there about that you have to love the product or service that you're selling or promoting some say yes some say don't a widget is a widget you love being in business and growing things others have you know an insistence that during those really tough times that we all have as an entrepreneur you really need to love the product or the niche or the business that you're in, in order to get through those tough times. I'm, I'm of that mindset versus the other, but it's also the lifestyle, right? I knew I didn't want to work in the restaurant industry and I knew I didn't want to work seven nights a week. And it was only nights. Nobody really delivered during the day. Of course they do. My son went out door dashing today to make a little extra money during the day. Uh, but, but it taught me a lot about what I didn't want to do, which I think is critical to an entrepreneur, trying different things, experiencing things and learning what their strengths and weaknesses are and what they like and what they don't like before they really fully are committed to something that, that may take them on a seven to 10 year journey in this entrepreneurial world.
0: Yeah, for sure. I love it. It's come so full circle that your son just went on a DoorDash. That's yeah. amazing. I yeah. love that. I like
1: to tell him I, I, I'm an original DoorDasher, but, uh, and, and then I'm kind of, a, I say, I'm kind of a big deal. I'm, I'm a best selling uh-huh. author. And they just like roll their eyes like, and shut up. Yeah. Not yeah. a big deal at all.
0: <laughs> um, but yeah, that's hugely, it's, it's so important to, to discover what we don't want to do. I mean, because like you said, like a seven to 10 year investment, I think a lot of times uh, maybe people who are maybe newer are thinking, oh, I just want to make a quick buck. I want to do that. I want to do this. And without that long-term vision, which comes into play with with your book and everything, having that long-term vision of where you want to go is so important and being able to sustain that is
1: hugely valuable. Yeah, let's make no mistake here. All I wanted to do when I started was make a quick buck. Yeah, <laughs> right? and and that's what being, I think, younger is. Right, that's the flaw of being younger. The benefit of being younger is you get endless energy and drive.
0: Uh, and as you, the na- naivete, I think, actually helps it, as well. Right?
1: Oh yeah, yeah. You're so ignorant, you don't know how hard it's going to be. Yeah, <laughs> it's, a, it's it's ignorance is truly, truly bliss. But age comes into it a lot. You know, I've built, bought, and sold over a half dozen of my own companies. And, and now with the, the one I'm in now, it's, it's, you know, going on a decade that I've been at it. So I'm beyond that seven-year stretch. I, I have a tendency to, I can only maintain my focus for so long, right? Yeah. I've got the, I can do that attitude. And it's an affliction most entrepreneurs have. Um, so, but I've evolved within the company. Uh, you know, and, and earlier in my life, you know, in 1994, I started at a company called Talk America, and I was employee number 34, and I was there for three and a half years, and that three and a half year period is more like seven now because I'm older, and I can, you know, grow and mature something a little bit longer. Back then, in that three and a half year period, we went from 34 employees to over a 1,000 Wow. um from you know barely breaking i think it was 15 million in revenue to topping 100 million in revenue so it's 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 its own entrepreneurial journey and during that i was able to do all sorts of different things within the company and very entrepreneurial driven so i didn't get bored uh, what happened though and i don't know how i got on this tangent but what happened though was that it became less of an entrepreneurial environment that culture changed you know, I always wanted to be the first one in and the first one out. I used to compete with this guy named Andy all the time. You know, to be the first one there and the first one and the last okay. one to leave. Um, but it got to the point where it was a corporation, a thousand people, uh, worker ants just marching into work. I remember kind of the last straw for me was I was in a, uh, I was in a uh, marketing meeting, you know, product development marketing meeting, and I moved into the product, product development department. And was working for this this woman Cheryl, and we're sitting around the table. Uh, Rob, the owner of the company, is there a number of people and product development people? Andy, as well, who I ended up not liking very much and competing with after after a while. But it, it, he had given a presentation on why we should kill this product off called Reading Genius, and uh, I sighed. Right, I went okay. <sighs> like that. <laughs> yeah, you know? I. I got a lashing afterwards. Cheryl pulled me aside, told me, you know, blah, 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 how rude I was and all this other stuff. And I said, okay, I, I've, I'm have i getting to the point where uh, I'm, I've been promoted to my level of incompetence. I cannot <laughs> maintain this, this growth and passion anymore. Um, I, I need to move on. And, and to be honest with you, I, I left before I got fired. I gave my notice and, uh, you know, I was going to, I was going to, I gave my notice uh, in product development and then was just going to go work on the sales floor while I you know, found something else to do. And I had been vocal about the person that was running the sales floor who had also been promoted to her level of incompetence. And uh, mm-hmm. while I was on my vacation, I got called in by the HR director and said, what the hell do you think? Uh, are we really, we know what you say about Jennifer. There's you're, you can't go work for her now. <laughs> and he, uh, he marched me to the door he was a nice guy, but he marched me to the door But uh, you learn a lot through those experiences of trials and and, and errors and more about what you want to do than what you don't want to do. But no matter what, along the way, you've got to work hard and hustle. And that's part of being younger and driven and ignorant or innocent, as you say, naive. Um, But as you mature, it doesn't become just about making money. Uh, For instance, I talked to a gentleman named Matt today who just raised $50 million to buy uh, Amazon business. I've sold Matt five businesses. We've become friends over the years. And we would just catch it up. And he said, Look, I don't, this isn't about making money for me. I, I have enough money in the bank at this point. I don't care if I make a million dollars or $10 million with this. I just want to succeed. I just want to do right. I want to do good. I want it to make it a success. I said, well, well, Matt, of course you do, and of course you will, knowing you, and at the end of the day, you're going to build a better business. And his goal is to exit for a great buyer to take over, and the end result is going to be a great price. And so you're focused on just building a great company. The end result is an excessive amount of money that's going to change generations of your life. When we're younger, we don't think about that. We just think about money, 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 now, 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 instead of being in that situation where he's thinking about building a great company for a great buyer to take over at a great price. So it's a little bit of a different mindset and shift that you can only get through maturity and experience, unless you're really, really good at listening and learning from other people's mistakes like mine and yours.
0: Yeah, for sure. And um, just sort of on that note, what keeps you going right now? I, I still want to dive into what you've sold mm-hmm. and whatnot, but you mentioned like Matt, that's that's his drive to keep going. He doesn't need to, but he's yeah. he wants to create this,
1: something special. Um, what, yeah. what keeps you going today? number of different things. So, you know, over the last Decade, I've talked about eight thousand entrepreneurs one-on-one about their business and trying to help them understand the value, what they're doing right, what they're doing wrong. Trying to take them by the shoulders and shake them, going, "Pay attention! This is your most valuable asset. Why do you think you're just? Why are you just winging it, right?" Mm-hmm. But it got exhausting and tiring, and so I couldn't. I couldn't reach more people by having more conversations. So I wrote the book. I put it all in the book. I'm trying to just reach more and more people um, and educate more and more people and help more and more people. And that's driving me right now. It it, it motivates me. And the more people, this is strange, but the more people that I can reach and the more people that I can help improve their lives, improve their business and eventually exit at a stronger value for them and their families, the more it's going to help me and my company at the end of the day. So, you know, I, uh, as I say, I'd be a hypocrite if I'm not thinking about my own exit, because that's what I teach people about training for your eventual exit. So, I plan out my own exit. It's eventual. It's not inevitable. It's eventual. It is inevitable, one way or another. I'm going to die, right? And I have to move on to at some point. But I focus on that, and I focus on helping as many people as I can. But also maintaining my sanity. You yeah. know, I I can't keep up the same pace that I kept up for. You know, nine years grinding it out as a broker or leading the industry. Now it's a shift in mindset to um, having more conversations at a higher level where I can reach more people like this versus just one on one conversations. Uh, and then helping, so helping first the clients understand the value of what they have. And they could do what they want with the information. And that's the beauty of writing a book. I haven't written a course, right? I haven't turned it into a video course charging $600 for it. It's a a $17, $18 book or a $10 Kindle. Mm -hmm. It's there. And weirdly, Jeff, that's the part of the problem is that... I, it should i should be charging $5000 for the book because the inform- people would say well that's really valuable yeah the perceived value that's the thing perceived value the value is there and they should pay attention to it but so re- for me reaching more people through the information that i've developed is is my my goal and what drives me now mm-hmm. um and like any entrepreneur this is this is about making a living as well so Honestly, I, I I do the numbers and the math behind how many books that I can sell, how many people I can reach, how many people I can help, and how does that translate into eventual leads at Quiet Light and close transactions and what it looks like two, three, four years down the road for me. Um, so for my own eventual exit as well. Yeah. So and All that like, drives me.
0: Yeah. You're building a legacy as well, like something that's going like to live beyond you through the thousands of entrepreneurs and business owners and things that you're helping along the way. So that's very commendable. I like that.
1: I hope so. And that's one of the uh, things that I didn't expect when I, when I began this role in my life was the impact that I would have on some individual lives and the long-term relationships that we've built. Uh, I've got a, I've got a friend that uh, he was invited to uh, leave high school, in Denmark um, because he got kicked out of so many <laughs> they <laughs> said it's okay. I know that the law is you have to go through 12 uh, years of education here in, in Denmark, but you, know, you, you get out, you're okay. And then he became a single dad uh, at one point, kind of like the movie was with, with uh, um, Will Smith. Um, he was sleeping in the airport. Um, he a flight was canceled. He was with a seven-year-old son. A flight was canceled. He couldn't afford a hotel. And so they're sleeping in the airport. Um, fast forward, you know, seven years and I helped him sell a business for just under $9 million, yeah. but he started small, 7 million was his first transaction, 20,000, then 200, and then a big one at uh, just under 9 million. He and I are friends forever for life. Right. Okay. Um, so th- I love that kind of impact, uh, in, in what I do now. Um, and I've done it, right? I've been there. I've done that. I've I've, I've walked that walk. Now I'm talking and helping others, and uh, it fills my cup in ways I never thought it would.
0: Yeah, for sure. And um, you you mentioned it earlier, but and in the book, there is always an eventual exit. Like always. either either the business dies or or you do, and it has to be passed on or whatever it is. So I think that's such an important note to sort of let's like, stick a pin in because. Um, like, people listening to this show might be, like, very early, like, starting out building that business, like, maybe their first business, and not even thinking, like, oh, I would never sell. Like, why would I sell? This is me. I'm building, building this for me. Um, yep. but like you mentioned that it's important to start looking long-term start or at least start thinking towards building something that can be sold and can be passed on in some way like what what's some of the advice that you give to people who are very early and maybe hadn't even
1: considered this at all yet yeah it's it's some of it's really easy and basic stuff but most people don't do it Um, the first is accepting that your business may be your most valuable asset if it's not now eventually it will be the second is understanding that Um, you're probably going to make the majority of all the money you'll ever make from your business the day that you sell it. That's a really critical thing to understand. Um, And as entrepreneurs, we get that shiny object syndrome. We can't pay attention too much. And we say, I can do that. And we move and shift and go to other uh, adventures. So I think it's really, really important. First, accept that you will exit. Second, understand that the majority of the money will come the day that you sell. Third, set some goals. If you can just set goals with dollars, dates, and feelings, you're much more likely to achieve them. And you're going to be much more motivated to do certain things in your business that will help you um, sell it for maximum value for you and, and and for your buyer and for your family. But the dollars, date, and feeling thing I think is really important. You know, So I, I coach people to Write it down. Uh, I will sell my business for X amount of money, dollars, um, on, you know, let's say in Q3, 2024. And I will feel unburdened because I'm financially free, debt free. I've got money in the bank. College is paid for for my kids. And I get to spend more time with my family. That feelings part is really, really critical. So you got to set a goal first and foremost. And I like the dollar state and feeling aspect. But then, okay, so you've got a goal. And this is, you know, think about think about traveling. And and anytime we go somewhere on a trip in the car now, we we break out Google Maps or Apple Maps, whatever it is, your your choice, and you put in a destination. But if Google can't figure out where you are today, there's no way you're going to get there. So you got to know where you are now. In order to achieve the goal that you've set. So that is the part of the education. That's the part of the book. That's the part of the training. You need to reverse engineer a pathway to that goal. And the only way to do that is to know where you are now. So you need to understand what brings and plummets value of a business. You need to know how to calculate what's called seller's discretionary earnings, where most of these businesses are valued off of. And then you need to talk to an expert to firm up that value range. Because if you do it on your own, you're going to have a, an incredibly broad range and you're kind of going to be a, a blue belt. You're not going to be a black belt, like an advisor. So you can pick an advisor at any firm, doesn't that be quiet lights, firm up that number so you know where you are today. And then it's a matter of just shifting your mindset like Matt, right? Matt's building a great business for a great buyer to take over at a great price. He's not like I was when I was 24. So I'm going, I just need to make as much money as possible, yeah. Right. That when I did that, it wasn't a sellable business. <laughs> so you need to shift that mindset a little bit. And then, you know, when you do decide to sell your business, you want to make sure that you're being smart about it. I'll give you an example. Um, we work with lots of folks that have brands that have been pitched on Shark Tank. In fact, we've got somebody that, on my team that currently has a deal with Robert uh, on a product called uh, Happy Feet. You can go buy happyfeet.com. It's Pat, uh, Pat Yates on the team. Um, but imagine if Pat was ready to sell his product and ready to sell his brand, but somebody reached out to him to buy it. It's kind of like, and that's who we decided to do the deal with. It's kind of like if Pat was going into shark tank, gets his pitch down gets his, you know, t-shirt or fancy t-shirt or fancy (laughs) clothes on, whatever it was, he'd probably be wearing slippers because his feet are happy. Right. (laughs) And he walks into the tank and everybody calls in sick, except for Mr. Wonderful one guy, you're gonna get a royalty deal. That's not the way to create competition. So I am always coaching people in, in today's world especially, Jeff, there's for for product businesses and even it's going to get to, you know, right now it's mostly FBA businesses. It's starting to uh, move on to Shopify stores and and content sites, but there's something called aggregators and they are labeled as FBA aggregators. They've raised hundreds of hundreds of millions of dollars to buy up these you know, small businesses put them in a portfolio and Im- immediately they, instead of a three time multiple that they bought them at, they're worth 10. So it's a smart bottle. They've raised lots of money, um, but there's not enough product to buy. So they're moving into off Amazon and they're, and they're buying content sites that will then drive traffic to their Amazon stores. Uh, but you've got to create competition amongst these types of folks, no matter when you're going to sell your business. So you need to when you eventually exit make sure that you don't say yes and negotiate a deal with that one buyer that reached out you need to in my view put a great package together and make sure that you're presenting to all of the sharks you, we've all seen shark tank and they always negotiate against each other when it's a great brand a great product the same holds true for your business and it should be not five sharks in my opinion it should be 500 you want to make sure that your package is presented to as many people as possible and then lastly you got to learn about deal structures because You're going to be, you're going to be hit with all sorts of things and you can leave it all up to the advisor, right? People like myself, people like the members of my team, we have been there. We've done that. We understand it, but we're going to be able to do a better job at managing your emotions and expectations if you do a little homework yourself. And so you learn about the different types of deal structures. You've probably heard the saying, you know, an ignorant mind always says no, um, and, when that happens, it doesn't mean you're dumb. It means you're inexperienced and uninformed about types of deals that could actually bring much more value to you, you know, like a an earnout. Everybody hates an earnout except the people that did an earnout and actually made more money on the earnout than they did on the actual sale of the business or an equity role when you sold seventy five percent of your business, you didn't you didn't get that extra twenty five percent cash, but you rolled that into the new co. And you trusted that the new owner would do exceptional things and eventually exit as well. And you get a bigger exit on that 25% than you did on the 75%. Learning about those different things so that you're not of the mindset of that, you know, an ignorant mind always says no. I think that's really, really important because you'll go into this process when you eventually exit with more experience and peace of mind and knowledge because it's going to be a bit, very, very stressful. When you're, you know, a week or two away from, a half a million, a million, five million, 10 million, 50 million, whatever the number is, you are going to get very emotional. I've seen it thousands of times and uh, you're going to snap. Um, mm-hmm. it, it, things always go off the rails. And when they do, the, the great advisors put them back on track, but it's also managing people's uh, emotions and expectations along the way as well.
0: Yeah, I could imagine. Um, just to rewind just a moment, because you mentioned like content being something also, like a plat- content platform being oh, a yeah. sellable business, what what defines a business that can be sold? Is there um, some criteria that you look at?
1: Yeah. So in in, in our world, um, and at, at at the moment that we're talking, and this is just a moment in time, we're kind of in that two hundred fifty thousand to twenty five million dollar value range, mm-hmm. and and we're there because uh, it, it, you kind of. A a business that's less than two hundred fifty thousand is small, risky, and young, right? And small, risky, and young is it's sellable, right? There's somebody out there to buy all sorts of things, but it's not going to be sellable um, at a good value for both parties, if you will. So we we try to stick to that absolute bare minimum of two hundred fifty thousand. There are exceptions to every rule, uh, right? So if we've got somebody that's just an amazing guy, and we've Seeing them, you know, grow a great brand and that's going to be their eventual life-changing exit. Meanwhile, they have the smaller one that they want to peel off. We're going to help them peel that off as well. Um, but it's uh, it, it, 24 months is kind of the bare minimum in terms of age. You've got to obviously be profitable in our world because it's a multiple of discretionary earnings that the business is sold of, and discretionary earnings is your net income plus what's called ad backs. And we won't go into the weeds there, but it's owner benefits and one-time expenses to get added back. It's pretty detailed. It's chapter 11 of the book. It's like an entire chapter dedicated to that. And that's where most people that are selling on their own screw up. They don't do a proper ad back schedule. So it's, it's right there for them. Um, so age is important. The, the risk of the business, really important. If it's a single product, whether it's a single customer or a single SKU that you're selling, it's 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 a, called a hero SKU. Uh, and it's a lot of risk that thing can change quickly. So the value is going to go down pretty dramatically. So risk, um, growth of the business, if it's trending up versus trending down, trending down, people might just put their hands up and say no, or if they say yes, they're going to give you a very low cash offer and the dreaded words and earn out, right. <laughs> uh, Cause they're taking on the risk. But without a doubt, the other two things are transferability. It's got to be transferable, right? Some people build businesses that are not sellable because the, the assets that generate the revenue don't transfer with a sale. An example would be someone that has exclusive rights to sell a particular product or brand online, but the owner who owns that you know patent on that product refuses to let them transfer that exclusivity to anyone else. That's a non-transferable business. So It doesn't matter if you're doing 25 million in revenue or not, if the assets of the business don't transfer, you do not have a sellable business. The last piece that's really, really critical that way too many people take too lightly is documentation. And I did it when I was younger, right? I started my first business in 1997. My goal, Jeff, was to make $50,000 in 1998, right? Because I was was making $35,000 when I left Talk America. And my goal was to make 50000 I made 500000 So I had, I had pretty good success, oh, yeah. but I didn't know how to reconcile a bank account inside of Quicken. And it was Quicken at the time, not QuickBooks. And the first time that I did that properly over beers with my brother's CPA friend on the back porch, mind you, got to love being an entrepreneur, right? <laughs> um, I realized I had about $25,000 more than I thought I had. So documentation is really critical for you, but also for the buyer of the business. If you can't show them good, clean financials or clear financials, I should say, um, they're not going to have trust in you that you're a good business person and running something that's going to be a low risk investment for them. So good documentation, especially when it comes to the financials, but also SOPs and contracts with employees or contractors. Uh, with manufacturers, things like that, developers, all of that, contracts that are transferable, all that's really, really critical. If you don't have those four things, which would be risk, growth, transferability, and documentation, you're going to ha- have a hard time exiting your business.
0: Yeah, for sure. And you also mentioned, rather than selling to five people, be selling to 500 people. How do you approach that for how does someone... um Yeah. Reach that sort of discoverability in people who are looking
1: to purchase such a business. Yeah. So that's the part that kind of requires hiring somebody to do that. Right. And so Quiet Light's been at this since 2007. Again, I'm here to help people understand, you know, mostly through the book so that they can just learn to begin with. But we We've been at it since 2007, so we've built an incredible list of buyers. If anybody is out there hoping to buy an online business, uh, it'll it'll be impossible for them not to find us in our listings. Odds are they're probably on our email list that they're going to get a notification when a new listing comes out. So when we put a listing out there, it's going to hit that many people or more. And it's just a teaser. Let me be crystal clear. You're not giving out all of the confidential details to everybody that wants to look at it. No, that first and foremost, they've got to have a non-disclosure, uh, a signed non-disclosure on file. But you know, there's a little teaser that just gives enough information to the potential buyer to go, hmm, that one's interesting. It fits my criteria from what I can see. I'm going to go ahead and inquire on it. And then, of course, they, in our case, that if they already have an NDA on file, they're going to get the a link to the details. If they don't, they're going to have to sign one and then a link to the details. And at that point, it's there's always a process, in my view. Um, if you're selling on your own, you'd approach that on your own. There's You can you can grab a list of 100 aggregators buying FBA businesses now. You can find it online. And you can reach out to all 100 on your own. And if you do that, that's great. First, do a teaser. Um, you don't want to give out private confidential information sure you want to if you're going to do it on your own to, in that case you might want to give them a link to the to the amazon store and light financial detail but um always 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 walk them through the process of not allowing them to make an offer after looking at the details that that sounds strange right you know i get lots of emails when the listing is launched and the uh, you know an offer comes in within an hour like. John, you didn't even read the package. You can't make an offer. Absorb it. There's a hundred questions that we've asked and answered. There's levels of detail that there's no possible way you absorbed it in 60 minutes. It feels very much like you're just trying to get it under a letter of intent and then make a decision to buy the business or not. We reverse that. And anybody selling on their own should reverse that. You want to have a conversation with your potential buyer or buyers, hopefully. Um, And then, and only then should they be able to make an offer? And then you compare all the offers against each other and you don't always pick the best one in terms of dollars. Oftentimes I see sellers pick the one that is the best fit for them and the one that is most likely to get all the way through to closing. An example where I uh, sold a business, had a business listed, we ended up selling, but it was $2.3 million. And I had two full price offers. One was all cash from a guy that knew everything and he had plenty of money to buy it with 2.3 million in cash. He was cocky and arrogant, and nobody liked him. <laughs> the other guy needed an SBA loan, could only come up with 10%, and then had to come up with you know, use the SBA loan process, which is going to take an extra 60 days to close the transaction. But he was prepared, he was so likable in the call with the seller Syed, and and, and he actually researched Syed's background and found out that they went to the same school. He made sure he had his gator hat on during the call. He made sure that Syed knew that he wanted to keep the staff in place and didn't want to change anything. And that was really important to Syed. And it was right there in the package. It was question, you know, asked and answered. So he did his homework. So Syed chose this guy, uh, Nathan. Uh, it was not an all cash deal. He ended up having to take a seller note on a two year standby for, uh, and then a five-year repayment period. So he didn't get his $230,000, 10% of that for seven years Wow! because that person was more likable. So anyway, my point is you always want to have a conversation between the seller and buyer to make sure it's a good fit because it's not always a good fit. And then you choose the buyer that's the best fit for you, not just financially, but so that you can sleep, so that you know you're going to get through due diligence, but so the transaction is such that you can sleep well after closing and have peace of mind.
0: Yeah, it's still a person to person interaction. I mean, it's big money. There's a lot going on, but this it's still a relationship business, like through and through.
1: As I'm so glad you said that because it's so absolutely true. And it is big money, and that big money, it's big to the person who is uh, selling the business, and that it doesn't matter if it's a hundred thousand, a million, or ten million. It's a life changing number for them, and so it is big money regardless of the size.
0: Yeah, for sure. So is there, are there any types of businesses right now that you're looking at that you're thinking like, oh, maybe a few years down the line, these are the, one, like where the, these are the ones where the industry is maybe shifting? I don't want to say industry because it it's such a broad space. But yeah. is there anything that you're really seeing maybe on the horizon that you're excited about and um, looking forward to see what happens in the next coming years?
1: Yeah, for, for the longest time, it was, you know, if, it, if somebody owned their own brand and they were selling on their own website, that would be the most valuable. Uh, if, it, when we compare niches, you know, it's, there's, there's really content, right? So it's a blog, if you will, talking about a particular subject, let's say soap operas, right? Mm-hmm. Rabid, rabid fans, and, and then they click links and they buy products and look at ads and things of that nature, and, and, the, and the business makes money. And then there's a SaaS business, software as a service where you're subscribing to uh, Helium 10 or Jungle Scout, for instance. These are Amazon SaaS products. to help you grow your business on Amazon. And then there's simply a product business, which is a brand where you're selling on your own website and Amazon and things of that nature. And then there's service, right? You're an agency supporting um, an Amazon seller or anybody else, right? So you've got content, SaaS, e-commerce, and service of those four, Right now, the hottest in the market is FBA, uh, e-commerce with, F- with a strong FBA component. What's going to happen over time, though, is that a business that has a combination, a balanced, right, well-balanced business with lots of revenue streams from third-party platforms like Amazon and Target and Walmart and their own website, and they own the customer there, and then content as well, they've got a content a component to their website or a separate website that drives traffic to both. Combination of those three would be the trifecta, I think. And then, well, I'm gonna add more to the trifecta because then if the product that you're selling has some sort of recurring revenue component to it, whether it's a you know, dog biscuits or supplements of some kind, um, having all of that. So you've got multiple channels of revenue multiple channels of traffic, and a recurring revenue stream, and, and an endless skew of skews that you can uh, uh, expand to, I think that's really going to be incredibly attractive to a broad, broad base of buyers. But that's just my opinion, right? Oh, yeah. Some people love content alone, some people like SaaS alone, some people like products alone. But, you know, a combination of all three uh, I think will be um, more and more attractive and bring a much higher multiple, right? Not just a value in dollars, but you know, if, if two equal businesses uh, are doing a million dollars in revenue or profit, let's say, and one is just selling on their own website and the other is selling on their website, Amazon, and they have content that's driving traffic to both that second site that's making a million bucks that might sell for you know five or $6 million where the other one might sell for four or $5 million that's because the lower the risk, the higher the value. The higher the value, the more that the business is going to sell for obviously.
0: Yeah, for sure. And then when when there's a personality really attached to it, how did, so say um so someone like Casey Neistat, he had Beam and it sold to CNN, like but it was so much him behind mm-hmm. the company that people went there for the personality. How does that play into these sales?
1: Yep, it's not going to be a clean exit, simple as that. Yeah. So Casey would be able to get Out of the daily grind of operating the business right and that's often what happens when people grow a business and it's their personality their name their face their reputation that drives traffic and converts to sales of whatever it is they're selling Um, but they they can't just sell the business and walk away and then joe valley is the name and face of the business nobody knows who the hell joe valley is right so they're not going to have a clean exit they're going to have to stick around and be the name and face of that business for a longer transition period, which is tough and risky. I sold a, do you know what a prepper business is? You ever heard of that before?
0: Oh, like preppers, like a doomsday preppers kind of idea? Exactly. Okay. Yeah.
1: Exactly. So I sold the prepper business a few years ago. And uh, the woman that owned the business was the name and face of it. And the buyer had no experience in the industry. And so it was a tougher sale. First, the value of the business was a little lower because she was Uh, you know, the name and face of it. So it was harder to transfer. Second, the buyer didn't have any experience in the space. They just wanted a content business. Um, And the transition was harder because he required all of the content that was going to be written and drafted to have her name and face on it Mm -hmm. for up to a year after the transaction closed. Mm -hmm. And that was necessary because the customers knew who she was. They couldn't just put Joe Valley's name on it. And the challenge with that particular one, and honestly, it would be a challenge in in any niche. Um, But in this one in particular, she was a prepper herself. So naturally, she's a little paranoid. And uh, she's like, well, and the guys that bought it, his name was Ewan. She's like, well, Ewan, I I have never seen anything that you've ever written. How do I know you're going to write good quality content that you're going to associate my name and reputation with? And he's like, well, that's a very good point. And I had to be in the middle of working it out going, well, why don't we have an approval process? And let's just say her name is Peggy. Why don't we have an approval process, Peggy, where all of the articles will be submitted and all the emails will be submitted for your review and approval prior to them being posted and sent out to the list. And and we work that out. But that comes with challenges. What if she's in a bad mood and doesn't like the way that things are being written or talked about when that's the way that Ewan would want to do it? And he owns the business now. What if she's on vacation for three weeks and he's got a backload of emails to be sent out So that had to be worked out. You know, she has to notify him a month in advance of any vacation she's going to take. She's almost an employee of the company, but she's not. She didn't have to do the daily grind. She got her paycheck. There's no question about it. But she did have to stick around after. And that's the challenge when you have a business that is, uh, you know, built on your name and your reputation.
0: Yeah, definitely. So this has been great. Like, I really appreciate you taking the time. And where should we send people then to check out the book, to check out um, your business and everything you're up to?
1: Well, I've had a blast. I appreciate it, first and foremost. Uh, To find the book, just go to exitpreneur.io. And I know it's a challenging word to spell, but it's E-U-R. And I I know that because I bought exitpreneur.com. And I was so proud of myself, but I spelled it wrong. Remember how I said I didn't do that well in college? It's (laughs) because I couldn't spell. So exitpreneur.io. Um, There's three free chapters there that will give you a lot of the information that you'll need to get started and figure things out. Um, But you can buy the book there in bulk or you can buy it through there on Amazon. uh, And then you could uh, fill out a valuation form there to speak to a a qualified advisor. You could also just go straight to quietlight.com and check out our listings and our business and learn more about what we do there as well.
0: Yeah, Awesome. Well, yeah, this has been great. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
0: I want to thank Joe for joining me on this episode. Be sure to head on over to exitpreneur.io, where you can find the book and uh, more resources for selling your online business. That's exitpreneur.io. As always, this episode of Starting Now is brought to you by Built. At Built, help, we help you get started online. Whether you want to start a blog or a business, head on over to built.co. That's B Y L T.co to get started. Built. Your website, built for you simply. Finally, if you're enjoying the show, I'd love if you uh, subscribe on YouTube, give a little thumbs up and hit the little bell to be notified when new episodes come out. I release a new episode of the podcast every Thursday and here and there I'm releasing some other uh, videos on the channel as well around other entrepreneurial endeavors such as NFTs, which is huge right now and something that I have completely fallen for and I've fallen down that NFT rabbit hole. So there's going to be a lot more content around that as well, along with some interviews on this show, um, continuing along with the NFT um, path of some of the past episodes. But anyway, I'd love it if you subscribe and leave a little comment and let me know that you're there. Just a little wave emoji um, goes a long way. I just, it's nice to see who's out there watching and listening to the show. But anyway, that'll do it for this week. Again, I'm Jeff Seris. This has been Starting Now, and I'll see you next time.